Good evening, everybody. The, uh, Dan has already indicated that I have 20 minutes at max. So in a subject like this, uh, it's, it's rather challenging. So you've got to be selective in the material that you present. Why did Jesus come? And when you think about it, the, uh, the verse on the screen really tells us in simple terms why he came. The Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so that's the simple answer to why Jesus came, to save sinners. But there are lots of ideas as to the process that was involved in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many suggest that when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, that it was to appease the wrath of a, uh, the, to satisfy a, a wrathful God. The God's wrath was generated when men sinned and the only way in which that could be appeased was by somebody stepping into the breach and offering themselves as a sacrifice. Now, that's in general terms what many people believe, but when we come to look at the scriptures, we can't help but be impressed by the fact that the sacrifice of Jesus was a work of cooperation between Jesus and God. And there are a number of passages which we could quote, but we'll, we'll just put up a few that show God's involvement in, in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That famous one, which Dan uh, referenced last week, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the, the work of the sacrifice of Jesus was an expression of the love of God, God's love for his creation. And the Apostle John, in writing his epistle at the very end of the New Testament, he says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, don't be fooled by that word propitiation. It, it simply means the, the a mercy seat, the mediator, somebody who stands between God and ourselves. And then the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so the sacrifice of Christ was anything but the appeasement of a wrathful God. It was the expression of the love of God for his creation. When we look at uh, the New Testament scriptures in particular, we see that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a work of cooperation with his father. 
Paul writing to the Corinthians says, all things are of God. Everything that happens is initiated by God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And so, as we've seen in, in, in other classes, the mind of Christ was in tune with the mind of God. And through that process, reconciliation was made possible. Again, the inspired record tells us in the book of Hebrews that in spirit, quoting from the Old Testament, Jesus could say, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. And you'll notice in the Gospel of John, quoting from the English Standard Version, Jesus answered those about him by saying, my father is working until now, and, and I work. Now, when you think about that last verse, my father is working until now, that verse teaches us that God has been involved in the process of reconciliation for a long time even before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's rather interesting that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was no accident of history. Look at what it says in the book of Revelation. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. And notice that section in green. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And obviously Jesus himself wasn't sacrificed uh, from the foundation of the world. But that was the purpose of God in anticipation of sin entering into the world. Jesus' sacrifice was planned from the beginning of creation. And the word of God uses these kind of phrases. The Apostle Paul in a, in a verse in Romans chapter 4 and verse 17 says, God speaks of things which are not as though they were. And so God could speak of Jesus as a sacrificial lamb right at the beginning of creation because God knows the end from the beginning. And that's possible because of the foreknowledge of God. In, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says that Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so the sacrifice of Jesus was done by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. Now, we're not here to try and figure out how God can do that. God is infinite and we are finite. But that's what the scriptures tell us. It was all in accordance with the foreknowledge of God. And when we think about that, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, we read the very opening words of the gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. 
In other words, right at the very beginning, the word of God was present. We see that, don't we, when we consider Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and it was done. The first day, the second day, and so on. The word of God was there in the beginning. And, and, and that word has been spoken throughout Old Testament times. Just consider the word of promise, which God has been speaking about right up to the time that the Lord Jesus Christ was born. There was the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered into the world, the serpent was told, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so sin was to be given a, a fatal bruise, a deadly bruise in the head. But at the same time, in that process of destroying sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, would be bruised in the heel. And then 2,000 years later, or thereabouts, God appeared to Abraham. And he too was promised a seed. And there he says, in thy seed shall all nations be blessed. And a few hundred years later, the seed of David is described in 2 Samuel 7. God says of the seed of David, I will be his father. And he shall be my son. And so right from the beginning of creation, the word of God was promising a savior. Somebody who would bring about reconciliation. And eventually, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, that word of promise became a reality. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus Christ was born and it became a reality, the fulfillment of those promises in, in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus' birth and life and death was no accident of history. And what we find is when Jesus came into the world, he came at a specific time in history. And, and we have a, a reference in Galatians chapter 4, which says this. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And notice how the previous verses which we saw on the uh, screen before us, how the, this verse capsulizes uh, the, the terms of the promises to David. God sent forth his son, but he was made of a woman. He was the seed of the woman. But it's that little phrase in green again. When the fullness of time was come. And that word fullness it means to be filled up or to be completed. There was a period of time set by God when he would bring about the birth of his son. Now, when we think about that, 
we, we then come to understand why it was that the wise men came to Jerusalem at the time that they did. Why did they do that? They said, we have seen his star in the east. And so all of a sudden, evidence begins to manifest itself that the fullness of time was near. Jesus himself said when he began his ministry, he came preaching the gospel saying, the time is fulfilled. And during the time of his ministry, the gospel of Luke tells us that people were waiting for something to happen. Luke chapter 3 says the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. And so something had indicated to these Jews and these wise men that something was about to happen. God was about to act to bring about salvation. What was it that gave them this strong indication that the time was fulfilled? And it's the prophet Daniel which provides us with the answer to this. In Daniel chapter 9, and verse 24, the record tells us, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so Daniel, in this prophecy, establishes a time frame when reconciliation for sin would be revealed, 70 weeks. Well, obviously that 70 weeks wasn't a literal 70 weeks because that's only just short of a year and a half. And even within the 200 years beyond the life of Daniel, nothing happened to demonstrate that the savior was uh, in the earth. And so when we look at numbers in scripture, we have to realize that they represent something else. And there's a principle given in scripture, a day for a year principle, we call it. In fact, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34, it's the occasion when Israel refused to go in to the promised land. God had sent forth 12 spies to spy out the land and they took 40 days to go through the length and breadth of the land and when Israel refused to go into the land God says for every day that the spies were in the land you will spend one year in the wilderness and so they wandered for 40 years 
There's a similar reference which you can check for yourself in Ezekiel chapter 4 in verse 5 and 6, where that same principle of a day for a year is applied. And so when you think about that and apply that principle, 70 weeks transfer, uh, transferred into days is 490 days. 490 days equals 490 years. And so the prophecy would be fulfilled in 490 years from a particular starting point. So what was the starting point? Well, Daniel tells us in chapter 9 and verse 25, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. And so there would be 490 years starting from this commandment, which Daniel speaks about. Now, of course, Israel went back to the promised land after 70 years of captivity in the days of Daniel. What we find in the seventh chapter of the book of Ezra, verses 11 to 15 and chapter 9, verse 9, that there was a commandment to go back to, to, to Israel specifically to Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And that occurred in the seventh year of the king Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And it is generally accepted that this was the year 457 BC. So, 457 plus 490 brings us to AD 33, the year generally accepted when Jesus Christ was crucified. Now we realized that there are challenges with many of the datings, but this indicates, regardless of whether we have the correct dating, that within that ballpark, within that framework, the Lord Jesus Christ was born, lived his life, and was crucified around the time of A.D. 30 to A.D. 33. And so the 70-week prophecy was fulfilled. And when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice made reconciliation for iniquity. But Jesus came to bring hope. He came to bring hope. And, 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 you know, when we look at Christianity in general today, there is an overemphasis of the death of Jesus Christ. That might sound a strange statement to make, but there is an overemphasis on the sacrifice of Jesus because without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death would have been no value at all. And, and that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If, in Christ, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And so it wasn't simply the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, that brings salvation. 
Salvation comes as a result of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that that's the message. The resurrection of Jesus provides a hope for others. Paul continues in that letter to the Corinthians, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And that idea of first fruits suggests that there will be a fuller, a fuller harvest at some later date in the history of mankind. The Apostle Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so let's not isolate the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which provides us with that hope. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that he will return to the earth. God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Who is that? Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And so not only did God schedule or appoint a time when Jesus would be born, God has appointed a time when he will return to the earth and establish his kingdom. And the guarantee that that day will soon happen is the resurrection from the dead. So let's go back to our original verse to conclude with. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Jews expected a Messiah in the first century. They were in expectation. But they rejected Jesus. Even though they expected Messiah to come, when he did come, they rejected him because he didn't come in the way in which they expected him to do. Is that going to be true today? When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back? Do we really know the Jesus of the Bible? And when he comes again, will we accept him? or reject him like the Jews did in the first century. Thank you. We're now going to turn over the class to, uh, to Joel. Thank you, Ron, and good evening, everyone. Hopefully you can all see and hear me. Our key Bible theme that we're going to look at this evening is the theme of the Sabbath. 
Our key verse for this week is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. So tonight we're going to try and unravel the mystery of this subject, the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath or Shabbat in Hebrew is a term that we might not be familiar with unless we know somebody who practices Judaism today. Now, in our modern vernacular, it's actually been reapplied to a bit of an intriguing concept, one that isn't religious at all. You might have heard of the term digital Sabbath or tech Sabbath, and it's something that's arisen in the past decade. The idea is that you pick one day of the week, usually a Saturday or Sunday, and you completely give up the use of technology for the entire day to focus on things that really matter to you in your life. Now, the benefits of your health and your relationships are probably immediately apparent. And it's a neat idea to explore in your own time to see if it has any value to apply into your own life. But far more interesting for us, for our topic tonight, is the idea of where a tech Sabbath or a digital Sabbath originates, because it actually comes from an idea that arises from the Old Testament in the Bible. Now, on screen, you'll see verses from Exodus chapter 20 or more specifically, verses from the Ten Commandments. Now, this was God's command to the nation of Israel, beginning at verse 9 of Exodus chapter 20. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here's an explanation of what the Sabbath is and why God institutes this particular rule or this commandment. God makes it clear that six days the nation of Israel was allowed to go about their business, to work, to farm, to sell, to be busy making whatever it is they made. But there was one day of the week, specifically at the end of the week, or the seventh day, the Sabbath day, that was supposed to be a day of rest. Now, God was clear that no one, Jew or Gentile, master or slave, should be working on this day. And the whole reason is because this day was hallowed, or dedicated, as that word means, to God. So this is a day specifically dedicated to God. And God even explains where the foundation of this principle comes from. He says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the details of the process of creation is laid out for us. And we're told that in six days, God created the world and everything in it. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And that's why he's instituted this structure of the week for the nation of Israel with the Sabbath day of rest. Now, this was a rule that was followed so intensely in the nation of Israel that they became legalistic in their approach to keeping the Sabbath. And that's effectively a fancy way of saying they had a checklist that they were to follow about things they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. So let me give you some examples of what I mean from modern Orthodox Judaism. So on the screen, here are some of the things that a modern Orthodox Jew will refrain from doing on the Sabbath day. Things like engaging in business transactions, driving or riding in cars or any other vehicles, shopping, using the telephone, turning on or off anything which uses electricities, 
uh, uses electricity, which could be anything including lights, radios, television, computer, air conditioning, alarm clocks. You get the drift. Refraining from cooking, baking, or even kindling a fire, gardening or mowing the grass, and doing laundry. Now, when you look at that list, I think it's easy to see how one might arrive at these conclusions. If a person isn't allowed to engage in any self-serving work, then first you need to define what work is, and then you need to consider the intentions surrounding one's activities. Now, it seems fairly easy to conclude that many, if not all of the items on this list would be working for ourselves rather than dedicating our time to God. But you see, there's a danger in this kind of thinking, in this kind of list creation, this checklist approach. Remember that God didn't give this list. Instead, God gave an overarching principle. He told the nation, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, keep it separate. Now, by the time we reach the days of Christ, the nation, and in particular the Jewish leaders, had become so preoccupied with keeping the Sabbath as this form of a checklist that seven times in the gospel records, they're going to come to a head with Christ and argue over the Sabbath and the work that could be done. I want us to briefly consider one of the examples of one of these interactions. On the screen, you'll see the record of Matthew chapter 12 and the contest of healing on the Sabbath. Let's begin at verse 9 of Matthew 12. And when he was departed thence, he being Christ went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they, the religious leaders, asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? that they might accuse Christ. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath days? Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Christ had already had run-ins with the religious leaders about the Sabbath, so this situation is actually a setup on their part. They're trying to trick or to trap Christ, and they wanted to see what he would do. So they ask him, is it lawful to do work on the Sabbath day? Because in their minds, healing meant work, and work equaled breaking the Sabbath law. Christ then traps them in their own reasoning, and he illustrates an example how any one of them would have broken the Sabbath laws, not just to save an animal, but to benefit themselves by rescuing one of their flock. And he says, here is a man, a human being of far greater value than any sheep. This is one of God's creation. And so Christ heals this man, and the Pharisees want to destroy him for it. Now, the problem that Christ identifies in a different passage in Mark chapter 2 is simple. Here was the issue with the logic of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. He says to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, how do we unlock the meaning of that term, that phrase, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Well, we need to come back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to uncover the order of events. It might not be apparent at first read, but it's really helpful to look at these records again. 
First in Genesis chapter one and verse 26, we have the creation of man and woman on the sixth day. And man and woman are the last thing in the list of things to be created. And then God issues a blessing on man and woman prior to sin entering into the world. You'll see two verses on the screen there, Genesis 1, verse 26 and 28. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So twice in those two verses, we're told that man and woman were to have dominion over God's creation. If we were to look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told that after the six days of creation, that God rested on the seventh day. So if you consider the order of events, that means the very first day that man and woman could execute or exercise dominion over the creation that they were blessed with, was the seventh day when God rested from his work. Now, this is an incredibly important point when it comes to understanding the Sabbath. It's a point that the religious leaders at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ had missed. And it's a point that the nation of Israel had missed. You see, the Sabbath wasn't supposed to be a day of no work, but instead it was meant to be a break from self-serving work. It was meant to be a break from the humdrum of everyday life, the minutia of daily activities, and it was to provide people with a time to refocus and to reflect on the things of God, to be busy doing the work of God. That's exactly why in the wilderness, when the nation is wandering and God provides them manna, every day they were to go out and gather manna, enough for just one day. Every day it would appear fresh. But on the sixth day of the week, they had a different command. They were to gather enough manna for two days because they weren't to be out gathering for their own purposes on the Sabbath day. Instead, they needed to focus their time and their efforts on the things of God. And that was built right into the blessing of the manna in the wilderness, the focus of God and his works on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. So then it stands to reason, should we still be observing the Sabbath day? And that's a great question. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, you'll see the verses on the screen, that one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. Now, this is a rather pithy way of saying what Paul's saying. It's very short, succinct, but if we were to expand on it, what what Paul's saying is that when Christ came, he revealed the law for what it was. It was an instrument. It was a school teacher. It was meant to teach the people about God. And it was meant to teach the people that they were sinners. And they were in need of the grace of God. Because no one could keep the law. Everyone was guilty under the law. And therefore, all were worthy of death. All except one, of course. So the law taught the need for the grace of God. And that grace we can experience in God having offered up his perfect son, the only one who ever kept the law, so that while we were yet sinners, we have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. Now that Christ has revealed the law as a, a temporary measure, if you will, uh, and meant to be a school teacher to 
bring us to a greater understanding, then we're free to choose whether we want to follow the law of the Sabbath or not. What Paul is saying is that God's given us all days. Really, we shouldn't be striving to serve God on one day, but really we should be striving to serve God every day. That's the spirit that Christ revealed through his ministry. Every single day, Sabbath or not, he went about preaching, teaching, and healing, trying to get the people to change their ways and reflect the character of God in their own lives. So it's up to you to choose whether you think the literal command of a Sabbath might help you to live those principles, or if you prefer to treat every day the same. But ultimately, whichever path you choose, the purpose or the ultimate goal that we're working towards is to be living every day in service to God and God's works. Now, there's one more aspect of the Sabbath that we haven't covered yet, and this, I think, is where the idea of the Sabbath gets incredibly neat. It's this extra hidden layer, and it's such a beautiful hidden gem for us to uncover. Remember, we looked at those verses in Mark chapter 2, where Christ says that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Do you remember when we looked at that verse? Well, what do you think Christ meant when he said that? Well, let's turn over to Psalm 8, because this psalm holds the key for us to understand. We're going to go through most of the psalm, but we're going to pick it apart in pieces. First, look at verse 4 on the screen. The psalmist pens, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? There's that title that Christ used of himself, the son of man. Now, this helps us to understand that even though David wrote this psalm, this psalm is actually messianic, meaning, in other words, that this psalm applies in the future to Christ, even though David wrote it. So what does the title, the Son of Man, relate to? Well, the next verses reveal it for us. David continues in verse 5, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Now, there's so much in these short few verses, but can you see where David is drawing his thoughts from? David's mind is back in creation. We have the idea of the dominion that was promised to man and woman after they were created, dominion over the animals. But we have a bit of a problem, don't we? Because of sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, that dominion ceased, at least for a time. But David uses another phrase that might cause us to hear another Bible echo. He says in verse 6, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and thou hast put all things under his feet. Now the Apostle Paul uses that very phrase in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's reflecting on the resurrection at the return of Christ when he returns to set up his kingdom. Beginning in verse 25, for he, that's Christ, must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. So when is God going to be all and in all? 
Well, clearly that phrase doesn't apply now. We only need to turn on the news and see what the world and the state of the world is like. We know that God is going to be all in all in the kingdom age after the return of Christ. So can you see how if we string Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the events of creation, together with Psalm 8, this messianic psalm, and 1 Corinthians 15, we have a pretty good idea then that the dominion being spoken of in Genesis 1 is actually a promise about the dominion that Christ and the believers who are granted a place in that kingdom will exercise in the kingdom age. So let's bring all that back together and tie it in with the Sabbath. Remember that we said that Adam and Eve began exercising dominion over God's creation on the very first day of rest, on the seventh day, the very first Sabbath. Well, that's exactly how David understood it. In Psalm 8, verse 2, David pens, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Now, that word still that's highlighted on the screen is an interesting word because in the Hebrew, that word is Shabbat. It's the word Sabbath. It's the word rest. So what David is saying is that when we experience rest, well, that's when God's enemies, specifically sin, which brings forth death, is put to rest. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And what brings about death? Well, the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us. So I know we've covered a lot of verses in our section this evening. But I hope you can take away two things from our topic when you think about the Sabbath in the future. The first thing is that the Sabbath was always meant to be a guiding principle. It was meant to cause us to cease from our own works, our own self-serving works, and to separate out time so that we can put aside the cares of this world and this life and instead focus on the things of God. Now, it doesn't need to be tied to a specific day. It might be helpful if it is, but really, it should apply ultimately to each and every day of our life. That's the principle of the Sabbath, to focus on the things of God and not the things of self. And the second thing is that within the Sabbath, we see a little glimpse of our future hope of a time when the world will be at rest, when Christ and the faithful believers will be able to exercise this dominion that was promised way back in creation, and when sin and death will be no more, and there will truly be rest in all the world, and God will be all and in all. I'll pass it back over to Dan to give us a, a brief uh discussion on what he's going to look at next week and uh, we'll close off after that so thank you all right well thank you uh, so much joel and, and ron for your classes this evening and as joel mentioned we want to invite you to come back next week for a, a special event we've been watching the uh, events in the united states and the uh, turmoil that's been down there and perhaps wondering you know what's going to happen how does god let uh, men be in control like this and uh what we're going to consider next week is how God rules in the kingdoms of men, how God works through various people to perform his will. And even when things look like they're right out of control, we can take comfort in knowing that uh, God is working out the uh, events that are necessary for the return of Christ. So we invite you back next week. Hopefully you can join us and we'll look at that special topic 
uh, before we go back to our, our regularly scheduled topics the week following that. Thank you.